Isaiah chapter 3 is where we'll be in the uh, scripture this morning. We're taking a, a side from uh, 1 Corinthians where we've, we've been. And uh, in Isaiah chapter 53, we want to uh, think about this is uh, Holy Week. This Friday is Good Friday, we call it, we call it uh, when we remember that Jesus took our place and took our punishment. And uh, the scripture here in Isaiah chapter 53 has been called the suffering ser- servant passage, and that's what we want to look at today, Isaiah 53. And the Bible says there, it asks, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is, a, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he, he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall satisfy, excuse me, shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. God, thank you for the scripture. Thank you for its truth. And we pray that you'll use it in our lives this morning and cleanse our minds, cleanse our hearts, God, so that we can hear uh, from your spirit. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will bless now in Christ's name. Amen. You may be familiar with the um, story of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but in uh, 1947, a a Bedouin shepherd boy tossed a rock up into uh, the side of a cliff through a hole and heard uh, pottery shatter. And it led to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were a group of uh, parchments that dated back, some of them, hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ. And one of the things that was discovered at that time was a completely intact scroll of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. And the fact that it uh, date was dated back hundreds of years before Christ gives such 
uh, clear evidence to the predictive quality of what Isaiah says in this passage that we just read. Because when you read it, what I thought is you could very easily be reading a commentary on the Passover week. It speaks so vividly, it's almost like technicolor to the events that transpired in Jerusalem related to Jesus of Nazareth. And so Isaiah speaking, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, hundreds and hundreds of years before uh, Jesus was ever born, gives us in this passage that we're going to uh, look at today and examine together today, uh, convincing uh, evidence of God's foreknowledge of what Messiah would be and, and do. And then when we compare it to what happened in the life of Jesus, we see the how, how clearly it portrays everything that, that happened as you read the Gospels. And if you're reading in this week the, the uh, story of crucifixion and the narrative about the life of Jesus and the suffering, the passion uh, of Jesus... And so, if I were a person who didn't know or wasn't convinced that the gospel was true, that Jesus was everything that he he claimed to be, and I read this passage understanding that it was written that far in advance of his actual life, and I were sitting on the fence, it would push me headlong and stumbling into faith. I think that's the power of uh, what Isaiah says here when you begin to put it into focus. And so this morning, let's think about what Isaiah saw, the vision that God gave him, uh, and look at it from the perspective that he's speaking to us about Jesus. So here's the first thing that we see about the suffering servant is that uh, we see in this passage his coming, the coming of the suffering servant. He asks a question that I think is a challenge to us. Who's believed our report. Who's believed our report? In other words, when you interact with this truth, is it something that you have internalized and made personal to yourself? Who's believed this re, uh, report? And, and so he describes Jesus in verses 1 through 3, the, the coming, what we would call his incarnation. The idea that God himself became flesh and dwelt among people. The coming of one whose destiny was to suffer. In our place, the, the idea of pa- his passion or passion week, it's that he suffered. It's that he took upon himself what we rightly de- deserved. So Jesus came and his coming was a mighty undertaking. When the scripture says, whom has the, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's interesting to contrast that with Psalm chapter 8, verse 3, where the scripture says, uh, in speaking about creation, it described it as, the work of his fingers. The creation was the work of his fingers. In other words, you, you get the idea that it's intricate. You get, you get the idea of the detail of it. But when the scripture speaks about him saving us, our salvation, it says, if he rolls up his sleeves for a mighty undertaking. And, and so he says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And we think about Jesus Uh, coming as a phenomenal exertion of God's strength to bring to bear on the greatest problem that all of us have, and that that is the problem of how sin has affected us and alienated us and and separated us from our Creator, the very one who made us for relationship with Himself. And so we see that Jesus coming 
is this mighty undertaking of our salvation. The Scripture describes how He comes in humility and obscurity. Look at the passage here. It says, He'll grow up before Him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. And then He gives us here, the writer, this historic description of the circumstances that are true when Jesus came. He comes in humility as a tender plant. As a root out of dry ground, the uh, Scripture gives us this idea of what the Messiah's coming would be like. And so he comes in a vulnerable way. And we just, you know, a few months back in the Christmas season, think about that vulnerability, that God would become vulnerable, that God would become someone who could be pierced, that God would become someone who would allow nails to be driven into his wrist and into his feet. That God would become someone who could be slapped in the face. That God would become someone who could be beaten with human fists. And of course, all those things are true about what happened when God came, when Jesus came. The Bible says he was uh, beaten. In fact, if you backed up one chapter in Isaiah, it says his visage was marred more than any man. In other words, he, he underwent a violent beating by his uh, uh, the people who arrested him and to, uh, took him in into their charge and charged him and trumped up these uh, these you know charges against him but the scripture describes him as being vulnerable he, he enters the world in through the womb of a virgin the scripture says he comes into the world and God himself comes through the womb of a teenager in a rural, Poor family in Nowhereville, Hickville. And that's where God came to, to to a town that really nobody in the world knew all that much about. As As a tender plant, he grows up before him, before God. God, in human form, Jesus grows up before God the Father. And the root out of dry ground comment is probably about the broken line of the king, of the king of kings. Uh, but of King David. In Israel, the, their, the lineage of David had been broken off, and yet the Messiah was to be of the line of David. He was uh, the ancestor of Jesse and the ancestor of David. But when Jesus is born, Herod is king, right? The Idumean imposter. Uh, that means he was a descendant of the Edomites, of Esau. So Herod was a puppet, really, in the hands of Rome. And when Jesus comes, there's an imposter on the throne. And Jesus comes in fulfillment of the prediction of Scripture that it would be a descendant of David, the Lion of Judah, this, uh, who would be the king. And so when he arrives, he, he is coming, as it were, as a root out of dry ground. That's the description that uh, the Scripture gives to us here. And when he came... You remember his cousin preceded him, John the Baptist, uh, who, who was uh, predicted as well, the forerunner, and that John the Baptist and Jesus' arrival end what the uh, scholars say was about 400 years of prophetic silence. When, when the last book in, uh, in the Old Testament is written, between then until the time that Jesus appears was about 400 years. And so Jesus shows up as a root out of dry ground, the Scripture says. And He also came at just the right time historically. I always 
was impressed with how this was put into the book of Galatians in chapter 4, verse 4. It says, when the fullness of time had come, when time was fully pregnant and God had fully prepared the world for the arrival of Messiah, it says, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. That's the description it gives, the fullness of time that God sent forth His Son. And we think about the ancient world at the time that Jesus came. It was just on the other side of Hellenism, the rise of the Greeks. So the world had basically a trade language. You you may be familiar with the idea. I had a friend who uh, lived in a foreign country, and he couldn't be there legally as a missionary, but he was there to teach English as a second, second language. Well, English is basically the trade language of the world now. People everywhere want to learn English because then they can uh, call you and ask you um, questions and help you with issues that you have on the telephone. <laughs> Maybe it's Comcast or whoever, but anyway, they, that, that's called a lingua franca, the, uh, the world language. You know, a, a language that everybody can speak was Greek in the first century. And so when the Bible talks about the fullness of time, it has reference to an idea like that, that there was a language, Hellenism, gr- the Greek influence made it so that everybody, that's why the Bible was written in, in uh, that the language of their day, Greek and, and Hebrew, uh, something that people could grasp and that they were, there was this rise of literacy at the time of the coming of Christ and, and an advance in civilization. So when it talks about the fullness of time, it encompasses a lot of things. But God saw this intersection in history as just the perfect time for the arrival of the Messiah. He experienced the peace of Rome. Almost, uh, it was, of course, enforced by things like crucifixion. But they had affected peace in the world. They had created a highway system. I had the opportunity to go to Turkey where a friend was serving And you can still see old highways that were built in the first century and before that are intact and almost serviceable today. They created a highway system that connected the world. And then after Jesus is crucified and resurrection, there is the possibility of travel and the gospel spreads quickly all over the world in the first century. And so there, that's a pregnant statement when it says uh, in Galatians, when the fullness of time had come. And that's exactly what we observe. It gives us this description of, of history that the uh, root out of dry ground is growing up and it's happening precisely in God's time and a, one who was going to be born of a woman. Why does he give us that description? It's because it's unusual. We wouldn't say that normally. But in, in this circumstance, there was no man involved. She's a virgin who gives birth miraculously to the Messiah. And he's sinless, and he comes uh, born of a woman, born under the law. In other words, Jesus is born into a scrupulously religious Jewish family. And in that way, God used him to fulfill all the requirements of the law. He's perfect. In everything that he does and says, it's, it's interesting that sometimes he'll violate the sense of the law that the religious people of his day do, but he's given meaning to it because he's the one that wrote it. He is the lawgiver, and he's the one who fulfills the law. And so we see in this passage this description of 
how Messiah came at just the right time as God had purposed always. And he came to active hostility. Uh, the, the scripture says he has no form or comeliness. When we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Probably this is the uh, only description that we have or one of the few about Jesus' uh, his physical appearance in the Bible. You know, we don't know. Nobody says, hey, he had... We, we assume, based on what we understand about who he was, that he looked like most uh, Jewish men would have looked in his day. But the description that we have here is that there's nothing in him that is uh, beautiful or attractive. I guess he just looked like most people did dur- during his lifetime. But the, the thing about Jesus that was attractive it was the moral beauty in his life. The thing that made an impression on the people that knew him was his perfection. You know, we could uh, live together near each other not very long before we discover defects and blemishes and stuff, right? All of us. I mean, we live in homes with each other if we're in families. And, you know, it just doesn't take us long to figure out that we really aren't perfect. But these people lived with Jesus for years and years. And their testimony at the end of that time was... Here's a person who never sinned. Here's a person who never did anything wrong. His attractiveness was in his moral perfection. But even at that, the scripture says here that he's despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, he's despised. And we, you see that when you read the gospel narrative. That Jesus is hated by some of the people. Why? Because... He blows up their concept of what religious uh, life meant. You know, they had these ideas that they, they would say, hey, Jesus, you sit down to a meal, but you didn't wash your hands first. You didn't follow our rituals about purity before you sat down to eat. And Jesus would say, well, you know what? It's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of a man that defiles him. He just blows their religious construction away and he, he's trying to cause them to see the real need in, in their life. But he, Jesus, when he comes, the Bible says he's despised and rejected by people. And especially when there's this religious bent that causes people to think, hey, we're doing all these things, that should give us credit with God. And, and Jesus is telling them that's not how it works. That's not how it works. You don't have credit with God because of the things you do. I've come to be the credit that you'll have with God if you put your faith in me. So he meets this hostility when he comes in the first, in the first century. And the, the uh, scripture says in John chapter 1 verses 10 and 11 that he was in the world and the world was made by him or through him and the world did not know him. Is the way. And it says, he came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. And the, it's, he, it says there, he came to his own things. Just like I said before, that the earth is the Lord's and, and it, everything in it. Why? Because he made it. He made it, it belongs to him. He came to his own things, is the phrase. The stuff he created, the people he made, and his own, his own people, the, the ones that should have related to him and known him, didn't receive him. It goes on and it says, but as many as received him to them, he gave the authority to become children of God. But when, he, when Jesus came, he's despised, he's rejected. 
and, and people turned away from Him. And it's striking that the one who created everything would come to His possessions and to His people and be shunned and misunderstood. That's what the Bible says happened. He was shunned. He was misunderstood. And He's called the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we think about why the Bible says that. Why does it say he was a man of sorrows? Because he knew the way that life should be. Jesus knew the way that life should be, and he saw that it wasn't the way that it should be. And, and it was heartbreaking to see the misalignment in the lives of people and see the brokenness and the devastation caused by sin and the death that sin had brought to the world. And so Jesus is a man of sorrows. He, the scripture says in chapter uh, 4 of Hebrews that we don't have a high priest who can't, can't identify with our weakness, but he was in every way tempted as we are, yet without sin, so that we can come boldly to his throne of grace to find mercy and help in our time of need and to find grace in our time of need. So when Jesus... Uh, comes to this world, he identifies with its brokenness, but outside of it as a perfect person who can bring help and can bring a solution. Aren't you grateful that that's what Jesus is like? He's, even though he came and identified with us, he, he's not sin sick. He's able because of his, uh, his love for us to also make a way for us. But that's what you see in the first part of this description of the uh, Messiah was his coming. What was it like when Jesus came? But secondly, here in this passage, the, we see the cross of the suffering servant. We see his coming, then we see a description of the cross in this passage again, that when we think about it, scholars say probably it was written somewhere around 600 years before Jesus came the first time. So when we look at these details, that's what we keep in mind, is that it's describing for us something that only God could reveal. And that He reveals it to us so that we'll have faith. So that we'll believe in, in who Jesus, what His claims were and what His uh, acts represented. So the cross of His suffering, uh, of the suffering servant. He suffers on our behalf, the Bible says. This is so uh, striking. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken. And what the writer, I think, is saying here is that for the people that stood there and watched what was happening, to them it appeared that a criminal was suffering on a cross. And that happened all the time in first century Rome. In fact, they would erect the crosses on the highway so that when people saw by, that's how the peace of Rome was kept. So they saw criminals die on crosses all the time. No big deal. And when they see Jesus, they assume, here's just another criminal dying on a cross. But the Bible says, no, in fact, what's happening, you have to go beneath the surface to understand. It's, the, it's not what appears to be happening on the scene. His helplessness, we know in the Gospels, emboldened the people that stood by to revile it. Even the Bible says two thieves were crucified, one on his left and one on his right. And you remember that one of the thieves reviled him. He said, hey, if you're God, why don't you save yourself and us too? So they look at what's happening. The appearance doesn't match what we know is actually underneath this event. They blaspheme him. They insult him. They disregard him. 
And if you were there and you didn't know what was happening, it would not inspire confidence that this is our salvation. And that's what the Scripture says to us here. We, we look, we see Him as the one who's being punished and stricken, but underneath that, know the reality is He's being punished for you and He's being punished for me. He's dying in a, people say, vicarious way. Substitutionary. That's what's happening. There's an exchange, a transaction that God has allowed to occur where the innocent one dies on behalf of the guilty ones. And when we see this described here, that's what we're finding, is that the scene at the cross is God's cosmic justice. That's what's occurring. Not obvious to anybody that would have been there in the first century. Behind the scenes and yet right there in the beating Blood, farce of a trial, backroom politics, appeasing and favor sharing. That's what's happening in the background that you can see is that the, the first century politics lead everything to this moment so that Pilate doesn't want to come under the scorn of people above him in Rome. So he makes a concession to the Jews, the, the Jews, the Pharisees, the scribes, the uh, high priest, all of them want to eradicate Jesus because of the competition that they, they sense and feel. But Isaiah is describing for us what's really happening beneath all of that and that Jesus is becoming for us our salvation. So he suffers here on our behalf in spite of the appearance that a person would have. And he suffers unjustly to bring true justice. God's righteous requirements are met in Jesus' sacrifice. It says he's bruised. Look at what it says, for our iniquities. It's, put, it's put in this contrast, but the perfect one is dying for the imperfect people. The chastisement for our peace, or the, the pathway to peace is through the bruising and punishment and crucifixion, the impaling on a cross of God in human form. The Bible says that this is the transaction that's occurring. That He is taking your punishment, your iniquity, my iniquity. Our sin is being treated in the cross of Jesus Christ. Smitten by God, it says, and afflicted. Wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. I heard an illustration in the long ago that if you imagine that all of your transgressions were in a book, you know, and you pictured that book being written and everything that you had said that you shouldn't or thought that you shouldn't have and, or the actions that, or the things that you sh could, have, could have committed to, and they were all filled in a book and written about you. The Bible uh, says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's, the trans, that's, the, uh, that's what happens, the exchange that occurs. As he takes all of the things that would uh, be against us and bears them in himself. And that's what the writer is revealing to us in this, in this passage. Jesus suffering willingly. In John chapter 10, verse 17, he said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He says, no one takes it from me. 
He says, I lay it down willingly of my own accord. Jesus chose to transfer our guilt onto His innocent account. And then to be condemned so that the writer could say in Scripture later, oh, now there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. He took our condemnation. And it says there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, who have a changed life. When God changes our life, He says He's removed condemnation from us forever and ever. There's no condemnation because Jesus bore it in the cross. The scripture says here he's silent before his accusers. He opened, uh, he was oppressed and afflicted, verse 7, yet he opened not his mouth, led as a lamb to slaughter, and his sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus didn't try to justify himself. He didn't try to defend himself when he was hanging on the cross. He didn't try to defend himself when he was going through a mockery of a trial. The Bible says he kept silent when he, he could have returned insult for insult, but it says in the Scripture that Jesus kept silent, except on the cross when he said things like this, Father, forgive them, for they do not understand what they're doing. He didn't try to adjust himself before a murderous mob or before jealous conspirators, except to pray for their salvation. He, his death took place ignobly, crucified between two criminals. But it's interesting that he is the savior and the judge of two criminals that, that are crucified on his left and on his right. He's their savior and their judge. And in the Bible it says that one of the persons that was crucified next to Jesus recognized who he was and, and cried out to him to be saved. And you remember what Jesus said to him, Today you'll be with me in paradise. And in them we see you know, the example of how a person might respond to God's offer of salvation. That either we are like the one who blasphemes and rejects and says no, or on the other hand, we're like the person who says, save me, deliver me, rescue me. And Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. The Bible here goes on and says, he was uh, taken from prison and from judgment. It describes the, the trial that happened before his crucifixion. Who will declare his generation? He's cut off from the land of the living, which is a description of death. And that it was the trans, for the transgressions of my people that he was stricken. And it says they made his grave with the wicked. In other words, again, he died among uh, malefactors or criminals. He died in the appearance uh, in death of a criminal. It says they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich uh, at his, at his uh, death. They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. And there we think about in the gospel narrative, Joseph of Arimathea. You remember that when Jesus died, a council member, Joseph, approaches Pilate and asks for his body. And the Bible says that Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man and he took Jesus' body and he placed his dead body into his own tomb so that Exactly what Isaiah said would happen, did happen. He made his grave with the rich at his death. 
dies among wicked people and then is transferred into the grave of Joseph himself and his family plot. And in the process, here's what Joseph of Arimathea did. He went public with his faith. He goes public with his faith. By identifying with Jesus in the way that he did, he takes a costly stand and fulfills the scripture that we see here. And you can read about that in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, uh, where he goes and asks for the body of Jesus. So we see the cross of the suffering servant. And then the Bible describes here the crowning of the suffering servant in verses uh, 10 through 12, the remainder of the passage. Jesus' suffering, we see, is effective. Look at what it says there in verse 10. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. This is God and his initiative. When you make his soul an offering for sin, it says he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. His suffering is effective. His sacrifice was not some historic event that theologians in retrospect scripted to match their religious ideals. They didn't read this and then go rewrite it. What they, what they see is that God purposed this and God initiated this, this crucifixion, these historic events and just the way that they play out. Rome didn't initiate Jesus' crucifixion. Even though Paul said himself, it's in my power to set you free, to release you, or to convict you. But Jesus, you remember what he says, you'd have no authority at all unless it had been given by heaven. He says, you don't have, you are not the person in power here. Earth, from the earthly perspective, yes, it appears that way, but the Bible says God initiated this event. God himself is the one who's driving these uh, forces. The Jewish Sanhedrin, the Pharisees didn't orchestrate Calvary. God purposed this from the foundation of the earth. Revelation says, chapter uh, 13, He's the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the earth. So grace and forgiveness were formed out of the labor of His soul, the Bible says there. He'll see the labor, travail of his soul and be satisfied. You remember how the scripture describes Jesus in the uh, evening before his arrest while he went to the garden of Gethsemane and while he was there the Bible says that he prayed and as he labored in prayer his uh, sweat fell like great, dro- great drops of blood is the, is the way it describes it. Laboring in prayer, pray into the Father. You remember his prayer? If it's possible, let this cup be removed from me, he said. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus accepts the cup that's been given to him to drink. And that cup is the wrath of God that we deserve, but that he himself labored to, to accept and to take. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He says, I have a baptism. What baptism is that? It's this this baptism. This baptism into death. This identification into our sin so that we might find forgiveness. The pleasure of the Lord prospered in His hand, the Bible says. That's the good news. The good news is that in Jesus, God's righteous requirements are satisfied. 
so that we've, we can experience His grace and His mercy. Grace and mercy are costly, and this is the cost. The cost is that Jesus suffered in our, in our place and took our place. And Jesus' suffering was for you, and it was for me. And that's the, where the Scripture lands here. He shall see the travel, travail of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. His knowledge of what? His, the experience of your sin and my sin visited in the righteous servant, Jesus. It says, by his knowledge, he'll justify many. How many? As many as will call on the name of the Lord. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, the Bible says, will be saved. God puts the, we, we respond to his salvation, to his sacrifice. And it says, therefore I will uh, divide him a, a portion with the great. I like that. You know why? Because the great is a description of us if we choose Jesus. That's who he's talking about here. I'll divide him a portion with the great. And we become great by faith, by acknowledging our need. That's what makes us part of this identification. And he'll divide the spoil with the strong. Who are the strong? The strong are the people that say, I don't have it together. The strong are the people that say, I have a great need in my life. That's who. It's just the opposite of what we think. In the world we think, well, might makes right. But in the Bible, it says the strong, the people that get to divide the spoil of victory are those who admit that they have a great need that they themselves can never meet. So he'll divide the spoil with the strong. This reminds us of uh, further along in the New Testament where the Bible talks about he, he ascended on high and he gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to men. So what's the spoil that he's dividing with us anyway? What's the loot on the other side of his victory? It's the gifts that God gives into the body. That's what. It's gifts, spiritual gifts that God gives to build up and to strengthen His body. That's the spoil that He's dividing with us. That's when He led captivity captive, which is the description here, overturning death, setting everything on its head because of what He did. Then He gave gifts to people like you and me to be used. Why? How? For His glory, for the building up of His kingdom. This is His summons. It's His summons to you and to me. His call for your life and for my life is to be part of what He's doing in the world now. It was neat yesterday to be here. I always like when good unexpected things happen. You know, we had a work day and we were... This thing up here, this truss, has been in the back of my mind and probably other people's for quite a while. Like, how's that going to get off the ground and up in the air, you know? And now it is off the ground and up in the air. But while we were doing that, like uh, one of our family's kids were here. There was soccer happening outside. And there's a basket that uh, Dodd, our ministry assistant, had put together with invitations that we were going to ask you to take home with you again today to invite people to the Easter service. But most of them got given away to Y families because people recognized, you know, took initiative. Little kids and Cody took initiative and said, hey, what if we went and gave these to these people that are out here today? All they're doing is like taking exactly what the Scripture is implying here, that God would give to us gifts that are intended to 
build up the kingdom. And that we would take those things into our care and into our hand and go out into the world with them and bless and help and, and connect people to the good news. So that was very... Uh, that was a, a blessing that you didn't see coming but enjoyed so much, you know. Just to go out among people and say, hey, you know, this is who God is and what He did and we want you to come celebrate the fact that He's alive with us. So, He gives gift, gifts to men. He divides the spoil with us. The spoil is for Him and for His, his glory, the Scripture says. Because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Now, identified both in Calvary, in crucifixion with transgressors, but in a bigger way with all of us who are transgressors. And that's the key to becoming part of the group he describes as the great and the strong. It's when we see that we need to be rescued. By faith we become children and heirs with him. Romans eight seventeen. Heirs with Jesus. Join heirs with Jesus. He says, we, we're, we become part of His family through faith. When, and we shed our alienation for acceptance. We receive God's free gift that the cross made possible and available. Jesus made this great exchange possible. We receive it by faith and repentance. That's how we receive His gift that this cross is describing. By faith and repentance. I remember when I had a moment of humility and openness and where I say faith and repentance intersected in my life. I believed what the Bible said was true about Jesus. I received His free gift into my life. I did not understand everything that that implied at the time. I think what repentance is, is making a new start. It's an acknowledgement of need, and we don't have to know everything or anticipate everything to repent. I didn't. I didn't know everything. I didn't anticipate everything. I knew the very basic thing that the Scripture said, which is that God's love for me was so profound that even though I was messing my life up every single day, all I had to do was say yes to His offer of forgiveness. And so in, in that moment, I became willing to say yes to His offer of forgiveness. And that's what this is a portrait of, in, as we see in the Scripture, is saying yes to His empowering free gift of grace and identifying then with Him as our Savior and our Master. Recognize our need. We ask Him. He helps us. We surrender in that moment. Knowing everything that we can know then, but with the understanding that He's the Lord. He's the Lord. Prophet Isaiah here says forcefully and clearly that Jesus is the Messiah. But what do you say? What do you say? Isaiah saw clearly that Messiah would rescue us through His sacrifice and sin payment. But what is your understanding and conviction? You know, it's not enough just to know this uh, in, a, in some sentimental sense. Salvation isn't what you know. It's who you know. And you remember the uh, Scripture says that at one point Jesus is saying to people, I never knew you. He says, I never knew you. They said, wait, wait, wait. We did all these religious things. We had all of these. He says, but I never knew you. 
Because what he's asking them about is a relationship, a relationship of surrender, where we, we become part of his family through faith. They're like, no, we did all these religious, impressive things. He says, I never knew you. But John, uh, 1 John 5.13 says, These things have been written to you who believe on the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have everlasting life. We can know. He says, These things have been written that we commit ourselves to who Jesus is and what He did and as we rest in His finished, completed work on the cross, we commit our trust to Him. The Bible says, Then we belong to Him that you may know that you have everlasting life. We can know. And I, I think that's the challenge of this passage. The first thing that it said to us is, who has believed our report? Who's believed our report? We're going to tell you these things. We're going to give you a description. Hundreds of years in advance, they're going to come true. And all this detail, the question then becomes, what are you, what are you going to commit to that? Who's believed our report? There has to be at some point in everybody's life a crossing over. A time where our faith and repentance intersect and we cry out to God and say, help. Help. So we're going to have a time of uh, commitment this morning. I'm going to pray for us. There, it's an opportunity for you to respond to the message. This is clearly a call to salvation. It, and it's possible that somebody in this room, if you, as you listen, has not yet surrendered your life to Christ. And the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this whole passage is about salvation and deliverance. So the idea is that we cry out to Him. We just say, God, I need you. I recognize that my sin is separating me from you. And I need you to become my Savior. And... That may be your need this morning. I'm going to encourage you uh, to take a stand for Jesus if you never have. To follow Him publicly and to acknowledge that He's the Lord. That He created everything and that He made you and that He made you for a relationship with, with Him. And if you've never b begun to follow Him in a public way by identifying with Him and then being baptized as a follower of Him, then that's what this time of commitment is for this morning. I want to pray and then we'll uh, sing a song together. If there's a way that I can help you during this invitation time, then I would like to do that. God, thank you for the uh, great witness in your word of Jesus that Isaiah saw in a vision, in a prophecy, hundreds and hundreds of years beforehand, what would happen. And then they came to pass in vivid, uh, vivid uh, detail that's been related to us by faithful witnesses. And I pray today for anyone as they've listened who has not yet surrendered themselves to you, to follow you, that you would give them uh, courage today to take a public stand and to begin to follow you as their Savior and their Lord. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.